Amen. I want to turn your attention tonight to Judges chapter 6, beginning of verse 25. I have preached from this text and preached about this character. Really, I feel like I've preached the living daylights out of Gideon. But I felt prompted to go this direction. And while I will revisit a couple key points that I feel like God has laid on my heart for this generation several years ago, I'm going in a different direction tonight. And so if you've heard me preach from this text before, please don't turn off the live stream. I'm going a totally different direction. Judges chapter 6, verse 25. It says, And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Gideon, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock, in the ordered place, and take the second bull, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. You following what's going along here tonight? Gideon, a called young man of God, has instructions from the Lord to tear down a pagan altar and to cut down a pagan Asherah pole, a grove, and to build an altar of the Lord and to use the wood from the Asherah pole as fuel for the fire upon the altar that he would build and sacrifice the bull as an offering unto the Lord. But what I want you to take note of tonight is verse 27, Judges 6, 27. Then Gideon took 10 men of his servants and he did as the Lord had said unto him, ready to respond to the instructions of God. Watch this. And so it was because he feared his father's household, his family. And because he feared the men of the city that he could not do it by day, but he did it by night. Now, it seems evident to me that our, the character in this story, my man Gideon, he is sneaking out of the house at night. Now, I've been youth president for two years, uh, two years now, and my first youth camp, I tried to lower the hammer, if you know what I mean. We went to youth camp, and I had been a part of youth camp for several years at Green Hill as a committee member, and every year on that last night, you guys seemed bent on sneaking out of your dorms and just running around the campground, doing next to nothing, just acting like silly, crazy people. But you would sneak out and run around and make us chase you. And, and I just decided that I was going to put a kibosh to this. And so it was the Saturday night service, the last night service of our Green Hill Youth Camp two years ago. And I said at the conclusion of that service, I said, hear me, no sneaking out tonight. This is not a suggestion, but this is a test of your submission. And a collective groan fell across the crowd that day. As people who no doubt had intended to sneak out, they, they decided against it. Now, there were still a few renegade rebels that, that in spite of my warnings and in spite of my admonition, they decided to be rebellious, you know. And they went out and they snuck out anyway. But what they didn't know is that I was doing more than just chasing them that night. But I was writing their names down. I had been at a youth camp recently, just prior to that youth camp, about a couple weeks before, and at that particular youth camp, they had this policy that anybody that snuck out during the week, they were the ones that had to clean up on the final day of camp, early in the morning before the sun rose. And I thought, that is just too good not to use. 
And so I had that list of names, and I went around to all of the guys' dorms because it's just the guys. It's not even like they're sneaking out, you know, to do anything unseemly. They're just going out to run around like crazy fools uh, in the fields and by the lake and just basically being annoying to us, the committee. But anyway, I went to their dorms, and I got them out of bed, and trust me, it was harder to get some out than others. But finally, they get out, and I say, hey, it's time to clean up the balloon shards in the field. They were biodegradable. They were going to be gone in like two days, but it didn't matter. They had to clean them up. They get done in the field, and, and they say, what can we do? Can we go back to bed now? And I said, no, sweep the dome. The dome did not need, need swept. We were paying for that, for somebody else to do it, but they had to sweep the dome because you snuck out. And I feel like I quashed rebellion in the camp, literally, <laughs> that day. I don't know if you ever snuck out at night. I'm not condoning this behavior, by the way. In fact, as you can tell, I'm very much against sneaking out. But, and I wrestled with whether or not I should tell this story on live television with my mom and dad watching, but, but bless God, here we go. There was this one time, I believe it was early high school, and uh, <laughs> should I back up now? I don't know if I can. But anyway, it was, we live here in Marysville, and the church is here in Marysville, and there was this one night, I was, it was summer break, and like some of you probably have been doing the past few weeks, I was playing video games maybe a little bit later than I should have been. It was Nintendo 64. I'm a, I'm a, a retro gamer. I'm a nostalgia gamer. Give me something Mario and I'm good, you know. And so I'm playing Nintendo 64 and I thought to myself, it was probably about midnight or 1230, and I thought, what would be better than playing Mario by myself in my room? And the answer was, well, playing Mario by myself on a big screen projector, of course. And so, you know, I could have done it the next day. There's no problem with what I wanted to do, but I, I left the house. I, I had this green general youth division, army green satchel, basically immersed, and I stuffed the Nintendo 64 and the controllers and the paraphernalia and the cables in this bag, and I just walked up to the path. And I mean, if it were today, I would not condone this behavior. I don't even condone what I did back then, frankly. And if you're a pastor or youth pastor, I'm so sorry for the problems I'm causing you right now. And if, and if I made you get up early that morning at camp and you feel like I'm a hypocrite, please forgive me tonight. But, but I did. I came to the church and I walked through the path. If it were today, I'd probably pass by like three drug deals. So I, I wouldn't do it today, but, but I came and I plugged it in and I, and I was playing Mario on the projector in, in, in the youth sanctuary. And about 15 minutes in, I had this epiphany and I thought to myself, I am the biggest loser that I have ever conceived of in my life. And after I had this epiphany, I promptly turned off the system, packed it up, went home, and went to bed. I mean, can you talk about any more of a low? I wasn't getting together with any friends. I was just going to play Mario. And again, I am so sorry. I just wanted to endear myself to some of the students listening, but if I have caused any issues for any, any people that are in leadership, please forgive me, okay? It's all under the blood, and somebody say, praise God. Praise God. But Gideon in the story here tonight, he snuck out in the middle of the night, sneaking out of his tent, away from mom and dad. And just for a little bit of context, let me tell you that Gideon, he had a call of God on his life. You can read about it earlier in chapter 6, verse 12. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Words that are dripping with purpose and with promise and with God's call. 
Verse 14, the angel said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? Verse 16, and the Lord said unto him, surely I will be with thee, Gideon, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Everybody say calling. Gideon was a young man that had the call of God on his life. And I believe today that I am speaking to a generation that is rich with the call of God. I believe I'm speaking to young people today that God has permeated your life with his purpose and and with his calling. I believe that this end time church is permeated with the call of God and with the purpose of God. And Gideon's response says it all, how he was feeling in that moment. He essentially, in layman's terms or in other words, he said, how in the world am I going to save Israel? Just a side note, if I could, I think that God has an easier time using people like Gideon, people that have a who am I mentality rather than an I'm all that mentality. I read through scripture and time and time again, I see people who had the call of God on their life, people like Moses, people like Gideon, people like Saul. And when God called them and when God anointed their life, their first initial reaction was, God, how in the world can you use me? But I think that God has an easier time using people that have that humility or humble attitude than somebody that's just kind of full of of themselves and high on themselves, if you know what I mean. That was Gideon. God, how are you going to do this through my life? We can see from this text that Gideon was called by God to do battle against the enemy that had oppressed God's people for far too long. He was called to wield a sword of war. He was called to wield a sword of war, to take back what the enemy had stolen, and to breathe life into a cowardly crew of Israelites that were more than content to hide in the caves and the crags of the mountainside. You see, Gideon was called to conquer. When I thought about getting the sword out tonight for this message, I thought, where's Dylan Noel when you need him? Dylan, I want you to know that if you're watching tonight, you would be my sword guy. You'd be holding this right now. In fact, we'd probably break out into a lightsaber duel anytime. A little shout out. Somebody say a sword. That was he, that's what he was called to wield, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Gideon was called to conquer. But before the Midianites crossed back over into the Israelite territory across the Jordan River to raid their crops as they had done for seven years straight, God had a test for Gideon. You see, lots of people can receive the call of God in their life, but not everybody will see that calling come to fruition. As the scripture says, many are called, but few are chosen. And God wanted to see if he could trust Gideon, this young man with the call placed upon his life. And so before Gideon was required to step foot on a battlefield, God gave him this instruction. It's our text tonight, Judges 6.25. Gideon, before you slay one Midianite soldier, before you go and wage war on the battlefield, I want you to go home, Gideon, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath. It's at home. You need to go there first and cut down the grove that is by it. In verse 26, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon this rock. Gideon was called to conquer. But before he went out to slay the enemy, God wanted Gideon 
to consecrate. God wanted Gideon to consecrate. I would say tonight to a student listening to me, perhaps you too feel called of God. But before that calling finds its fulfillment in your life, God wants you to go find everything ungodly in your life, anything unlike him, and tear it down. And it is your commitment to consecration that lets God know that he can trust you to conquer. You see, we like to get really excited about the sword that God has called us to wield. But before we can wield a sword, God has called a young person first to wield an axe. Because before you can wield a weapon of deliverance to set the people of God free and to take God's people into a new dimension of liberty, God said to Gideon, first, I need you to wield a tool of demolition. I would say to a young person tonight, okay, you feel called. I'm thankful for that. But right now in this season, right now in the in-between place, Are you willing to consecrate? Because between your calling and conquering comes consecration. I'm wondering if you really do feel that call of God on your life. I'm wondering if you would make it a priority to set aside the distractions of social media and put down the video game controller and make certain that in your schedule there is time afforded for prayer and Bible study. It's called consecration. We're called. This generation is dripping with it. But what separates the called from the chosen is is when a young person who may be waist deep five seasons into their favorite TV show that that does not glorify God and that promotes and propagates all kinds of ungodly lifestyles, that are you willing to just take that ax and chop it down and let it become the fuel for the sacrifice that you want to give to God in your life? I wonder if there's a relationship, romantic or otherwise, that you are engaged in and you've been feeling that call of God and that that nagging scripture being not unequally yoked together with unbelievers and can two walk together except they agree. They've just been nagging at you and God would say to you tonight, I'm wondering if you are really as committed to your calling as you say you are. Are you willing to consecrate? Because the test that God puts before every one of us, all the called people of God, is a test of consecration. There's a call of God on your life, Gideon, but there's not enough room in your life for your calling and any ungodly clutter that may also exist. And so you got to go home to your father's camp, to your father's house, and you've got to choose one or the other. What's it going to be, Gideon? Will it be the, the pagan altar of Baal and the pagan Asherah pole of the grove? Or will it be your calling? See, the sword is glamorous. <laughs> The sword is something you can post on Instagram, you know. The sword is something that will get you all kinds of likes and comments. It's the solo at whatever event. It's preaching whatever sermon at whatever venue. It's it's, it's doing something notable for the kingdom of God. And I understand that it's not as glamorous to, to wield that axe. Not as glamorous as the battlefield. It's not something that will get you recognized by everyone. Consecration often goes overlooked. Come on, David, I know you're anointed to be king, but you got to go and tend some sheep and kill the lion and kill the bear. You're not going to get noticed for that. 
But when it comes time to conquer Goliath, you're going to have some wins under your belt, some private victories. You've consecrated before the Lord. And so step number one, Gideon, I know I'm preaching to some Gideons tonight that you feel called of God. Step number one is to get yourself a spiritual axe and remove remove everything ungodly in your life and rebuild a spiritual altar before the Lord tonight. Be willing, young person, to open up your hand and to let it go and to give it to God. No sacrifice is too great. And furthermore, God does not overlook any sacrifice that we make for him and for his kingdom and for our calling. We must be willing to do what the writer of Hebrews said and lay aside every weight and lay aside the sin that does so easily beset us so that we can run this race with patience. Consecration. That's what God is looking for. And Gideon evidently is ready to make the right choice. Ready to heed the word of God. To eliminate all these idols. He's ready. And he's making room in his life for the call of God. But really tonight, that's, that's just kind of the preface. That's context. The scripture that grabbed me and what I feel the Lord wanted me to preach to this Atlantic Youth Convention on a Sunday night as we close out this incredible weekend, it's found in verse 27. Because the Bible says, although he was willing, he gets gets some of his servants that were working for him in his father's household, and he did as the Lord said unto him. Please notice the last part of verse 27. It says, and so it was because he feared his father's household. And because he feared the men of the city, those are his brothers, those are fellow Israelites, mind you. The Bible says that he could not do it by day, that he did it at night. Here is an unfortunate reality about answering the call of God and boldly making a stand for righteousness. Sometimes it's the people around you that should understand those that should be supportive and should ultimately be doing the same thing that you're doing that give you the most resistance. It's those people. Because it wasn't the Midianites that Gideon was afraid of. They're still on the other side of the Jordan. They haven't crossed to the west side yet. They haven't crossed into Israelite territory. Gideon's not afraid of the Midianites getting upset about a pagan shrine being torn down. Gideon The cause for concern for him was the people of God around him that made him cower under the cover of darkness. Now let me qualify tonight. I don't want to paint the picture that everyone else is just backslidden carnal. I don't think this is the majority of people in in our communities of faith, in our church families, in our youth groups. But let's just be honest And say that sometimes it's the vocal minority that pushes the rest of us in the corner and intimidates us into inactivity. It's those perhaps in our own youth group that are too in love with the status quo and don't want to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And and so it's easier for the rest of us sometimes to just go with the flow, to not rock the boat, and to just stay average. I read and I see that Gideon was afraid of the opinion of his brethren, not the enemy, his brothers. 
His concern was not with, oh no, what will the Midianites do to me? And the concern for us tonight should not be, what will the enemy do to me? Come on, Satan is already defeated. And we've got a stronger one dwelling on the inside of this temple. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm not afraid what the enemy might do to me if I stand up and and put my feet on the ground and stand firmly and say, God, I'm all in this for you. But my concern sometimes is what will my family think? What will my fellow Israelites think? What will the people of God, the ones who should know better and should be more passionate for God but have slipped into a place of complacency and and in this case, idolatry and paganism, what will they think of me? What will they think of my stand for holiness? Seems like There's some that aren't too concerned about it, but I am. Wonder what they'll think of me getting rid of these godless idols in my life. I wonder what they'll think if I show up and I no longer can talk about the latest and the greatest TV show and whatever Hollywood is pushing these days. I wonder what what they will say to me going against the grain and resisting the flood tide of mediocrity that can grip this generation if we're not intentional. And when I read about Gideon, what I see is that he didn't want to be singled out for his bold stand of consecration, and so he did it in the dark. He was afraid of what his brethren might say, those in his community, the people of God. And what I observe happening in Gideon in this story is something I believe can settle in the spirit of every child of God. It is this pressure that we all feel at times to conform to the norm, the pressure to not be too bold, to not be too consecrated, to not be too passionate, but just, hey, you know, fall in line and don't challenge the status quo too much and, and don't, don't alter the spiritual climate too much. We're just a little too comfortable for that. But I've come with a word in the Holy Ghost tonight to deliver you from the opinions of other people because there will always be those other voices that want to shut down your bold stand for God and silence your passion. But don't allow the lowest common denominator in your youth group or in your church family keep you from being everything that God has called you to be. Come on, I wish there would be a young person all across the Atlantic District and Atlantic Canada that would rise up this evening and say, even if I'm the only one, I'm willing to stand and be different. I'm willing to stand and be passionate because it's not for them anyway. It's all for Jesus. I've come for the audience of one. My life is to be lived for the audience of one, and that is Jesus Christ. I feel like there's somebody that might be listening to me this evening. And maybe you felt that pull in your spirit in this season, in this last days. Be more intentional about prayer, personal prayer, corporate prayer, prayer, perhaps in your church building. I understand it's a unique season, but with your pastor's permission, I know that you would have the opportunity to perhaps go and and pray in the church, it's not getting used for very much else these days, right? Why not? I think sometimes if you feel that desire or that inclination, I think maybe the tendency perhaps would be to wait for your youth pastor to plan it. 
Maybe wait for them to set it up so that more people will go and it's more popular and it's not just you. But, but I would just challenge you, don't wait until it's popular to pray to go pray. But just go pray. Just take that initiative. Be the only student doing it. Be different. Stand out. That's fine. Others may label you overzealous. That's fine. Others may label you all kinds of other things, maybe a little crazy, maybe a little bit overboard, but that's fine. All the while, they're content to just watch more Netflix or play more video games, but, but who cares what they think? Because your prayer meeting, going and spending time in the presence of God, maybe all by yourself, might be the very thing that starts a revival in your youth group and sparks a fire in the hearts of your biggest critics and the ones that resist you the most. I remember when I was growing up in the youth group here at CCC, we had a weekly youth prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. This was on top of our church family prayer meeting. I don't think it's wise to substitute, but we wanted to go above and beyond. We were hungry for God. Our youth pastor did not organize that prayer meeting. Our youth pastor did not twist our arm to have that prayer meeting. A small number of us just did it, and it grew. and People came and sought God. Our youth pastor, you know, he had other responsibilities. He wasn't always able to come. But if the youth pastor wasn't able to be there, we didn't shut it down or cancel it. We kept going. Sometimes he'd come, sometimes he wouldn't. But we were hungry for God. And I would just say you don't need your leadership to be present every time that you want to do something for God. I think Jesus had something to say about that, right? Doing it in public to be seen. You don't need leadership present. You just need their permission. Go and seek God. You don't need the whole youth group on board to have a prayer meeting. It may just be you for the first bit, but go ahead. Make it happen. Start praying and see revival start to spread. We need to follow the example of Jesus that brought his disciples to Gethsemane, and, and some of them stayed at one place. And a handful of them, Peter, James, and John, they went a little further with Jesus, and they rose to a different level, and they prayed there. But Jesus himself, the Bible says in Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. Perhaps the majority is willing to only go to a certain level with Jesus. But I wonder if there's anyone willing to go beyond everybody else in their prayer. Everybody else might be dozing off, but, but I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm wanting to make my life count, and I'm wanting to follow the example of Jesus. I'm hungry to consecrate myself before the Lord, and so I'll go off all by myself, go to the furthest reaches, and see God begin to meet me. We all have been in services, haven't we? Where we feel that nudge in the Holy Ghost, and we feel the, the music's playing, the singers are leading us in worship, and we feel to get out of our seat, our toes are tapping, our hands are clapping, but that's just not doing it. And we feel this tug in our spirit to begin to worship God passionately. And what's the first thought that crosses our mind after we think, I should take a lap around this church? You already know. I wonder what they will think. I, I wonder what that person will say about me if I really get beside myself. Hear me tonight. 
I know we're not together, and, and I know it's a different circumstance, but that doesn't mean we can't worship God in our homes. And, and when you get back into your church buildings, whenever that happens to be, come on, if you feel like taking a lap around the pews, if you, if you feel like dancing before the Lord, don't let the opinions of other people hold you back. Don't worship in the shadows. Don't worship in the darkness of, a, of the confinements of a pew or a seat. Your bold worship might just be the very thing that breaks open a move of God in a service and sees miracles and signs and wonders begin to take place in your midst. I think of David who was willing to dance before the Lord as he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And every seventh pace, he began to dance with all of his might before the Lord. But there was Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul, who saw this happening out in the streets. David had taken off his kingly outer garments, the royal robes, and he looked like a commoner as he worshiped God with abandon. And she approaches him when he gets to the palace and into Jerusalem, and, and she says as sarcastically as she can, oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. You look like a peasant, David. You're a king. You need to smarten up. <laughs> but David said, hey, hold on. I wasn't doing this to appease your opinion, Michael. I wasn't doing this thinking, I wonder what my wife is going to say about me worshiping God like this. David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord. You see, my worship is not for you, Michael. My worship is for the audience of one. My worship is before the Lord. David was not worshiping to impress people. We do not worship to impress people. We worship God. And so it doesn't matter who doesn't like it. It doesn't matter who sees us or who doesn't, who takes note or who doesn't, who wants to ridicule and mock us or who doesn't. Our worship is for the Lord. In fact, David didn't even care what he looked like to himself. He rose above his own pride. And verse 22 says, he said, hey, I'm going to become even more undignified than this, and I will be base in my own sight. I don't think you can get any closer in relationship than a spouse. As close relationally to the king as you can get. But the one that was closest to him was the one that was most critical of his passionate stand of worship. I've come to tell you tonight, there will always be a Michael in the window. Looking down their nose at you for being passionate about God. But I refuse to be held bound by the opinions of carnal people. Let the armchair critics chirp on. I'm not going to let their criticisms or their nasty stares hold me back from giving God my best in worship, in prayer, in consecration, in every area of spiritual discipline. I'm not doing it for you anyway. I'm doing it for Jesus Christ. I would say it is time in the end times, in the 21st century, for apostolic worshipers to arise and come out of the shadows and come out of the dark and not be willing to held, be held captive and cower in fear because of the opinions of your peers or somebody sitting across the aisle in the next pew. I, re I refuse to be held captive 
captive by what you think of me, but I choose to be liberated by what he thinks of me. And as long as God is pleased, then I am pleased and I'm content. And so you continue to read. And I don't intend to be much longer tonight. In Judges chapter 6, you see what happens. Gideon's gone out and he has obeyed what God has spoken to him to do. Verse 28, when the men of his city, when the men of the city, somebody say his brothers, his brothers, biological brothers and fellow Israelite brethren. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove, the Asherah pole was cut down. That was by it. And the second bullock, the one that you know, Gideon had tied together with ropes, attached it to the altar and got that bull to pull that altar over. That second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And, and they said one to another, who hath done this thing? We need to single this person out as fast as possible and, and rein them in a little bit. And they re- inquired and, and they asked. They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Verse 30. And then the men of the city said unto Joash, that's Gideon's father, Bring out thy son, that he may die. Carnality's first instinct is to kill anything that challenges it. Complacency's first instinct and desire is to kill anything that is pushing for spiritual progress. Gideon, you know, we're really comfortable being wishy-washy. We're a little bit too comfortable just kind of straddling the line. We've got, you know, we've got our worship to Jehovah, but we've got these pagan altars and no big deal. We got a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. Never mind that to be friends with to be friends with the world or to have friendship with the world is enmity against God. But but never mind that. It, it doesn't matter, Gideon. We we're comfortable where we are and, and we can't afford to have you messing things up. And so Gideon, you you gotta go. And it was their intention to wipe him out. But Joash, his father, he said unto all those that stood against him, are you going to plead for Baal? Are you going to be his lawyer? Are you going to save him? If he be a God, let him plead for himself. Because one has cast down his altar. Guys, you're giving way too much power and life to this lifeless God. If Baal really is all that you think that he is, if, if there's really as much fulfillment and joy in, in, in this idol that you've been worshiping, then, then let this idol fight for himself. Let this God fight for himself. I just want to pull one little principle out of that verse. Because I see that because God, because Gideon rather, made a stand for righteousness. Because Gideon made a stand for consecration. When his brothers in Israel tried to shut him down, Joash, his father, came and stood for him and silenced his critics. And I would say to a student, as long as you've got your heavenly father on your side, it doesn't matter who else is against you. If God be for us, who can stand against us? And when you stand for God, hear me, your heavenly father, he will come and he will stand for you and he will fight your battles. Joash... He stood in the gap, and he pushed back against the adversaries of Gideon. 
Doesn't matter who's not on your side, young person. Doesn't matter who's not in favor of your passion, for your zeal, not in favor of, of your boldness. God loves it. Your heavenly father loves it. And he will stand with you and fight for you. Music, come and join me. Hear me tonight. Feel that this is what the Lord wants me to say on the Sunday night of youth convention. If you are going to rise up and be something for God, and I would say in a collective sense, if we are going to see a rush of end time revival, like is prophesied in the word of God, in this end time generation, in your churches, your youth groups, your schools, your communities, our provinces, and our nation. If we're going to see it happen, we must have somebody. We must have even, I would say, a handful of somebodies, a handful of Gideons, a remnant that is not concerned with the opinions of their peers. I'm not talking tonight about the peers that are outside in, in, in your school classroom and in the world. We already understand we're an oddity to this world. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, a peculiar people. Dress that word up however you want. It means odd. We are an oddity in this world, and we understand that. We already understand, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. We, we already understand we're to be different from this world, but what I'm preaching to you tonight is there are moments when you've got to even separate yourself from the average, from the mediocrity, from the complacency and the apathy, and be willing to stand and rise above your peers. I'm not talking about being disunified. I'm not talking about being arrogant or being a jerk, but there are those moments when you've got to rise above the opinions of other people and refuse, say, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm not going to go out in the dark. I'm not going to be intimidated by what you might think or say. It can be easy to be held back by the opinions and the actions of our brothers, can't it? David was anointed in the presence of his brethren in 1 Samuel 16. You turn the page to chapter 17. He's delivering cheese and crackers to his brothers on the battlefield of the Valley of Elah. And David sees this giant of the Philistines taunting the people of God, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway? Let me at him. And wouldn't you know, the one that was the most unsupportive of David's desire to get engaged and to lean into the battle it was his eldest brother, Eliab, who was there, who knew he was anointed, who knew he had a call of God in his life. But Eliab looked his brother square in the eye and he said, your motives are wrong. You're conceited, David. Go back to the sheepfold. Go make yourself useful somewhere else. But thank God David got beyond the words of his brother, Eliab. I don't care what you think about me, Eliab. God has a purpose for me in this moment. David did what nobody else could or was willing to do. And he slayed the giant. He got beyond the words of his brothers, the actions, the opinions of his brothers. I think of the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You probably know them as their, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image when the music played. 
But understand, they were not the only three Hebrews that were there in the crowd that day. They were not the only three Israelites in Babylonian captivity. There were plenty of others that were there that day who were more than content to bow to the whims of the worldly culture. But these Hebrew boys were not just willing to rise above the intimidation of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, but they were willing to rise above the intimidation of watching all their other brothers bow. Watching all the other Hebrews just cave and conform to the culture. But they said, I don't care what my brothers are doing. I'm going to stand. I refuse to bow. I'm committed to consecration. See, Joseph had a dream from God. And his dream made his brothers hate him. They disdained him for his dream. And his own brothers tried to wipe him out and to kill him because carnality will kill anything that challenges it or threatens it. And they threw him in a pit all because he was passionate about a dream and a purpose that God had put in his life. Moses had a call from God to be a deliverer of the people of Egypt, didn't he? But Moses had some concerns and he starts negotiating with God at the burning bush at the moment of his calling. And you read, just watch this, Exodus 4 verse 1. Moses rebuts God's calling and he says, hold on. Behold, they will not believe me. They will not hearken unto my voice for they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. The question is, who is the they in this verse? We just automatically assume that Moses is referring to Pharaoh. Oh, Pharaoh won't believe me. We think that Moses is referring to the Egyptians. Oh, the Egyptians won't, they won't, they won't receive what I'm trying to do. But it's not the Egyptians and it's not Pharaoh. You check it out. Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, read it. Moses was not concerned with them. He was concerned with the Israelites. What will they think of me? What will my brothers think of me? And you know, God gave him all kinds of supernatural tricks. The serpent, that the rod that turned into a serpent, the hand that became leprous and others. And those signs, I've seen the prince of Egypt too, but they get it wrong. Those signs were not to convince Pharaoh of his calling. Those signs were to convince his brothers of his calling. Those signs were to show Aaron and the Israelite community that God really has spoken to me. And Moses had to perform all kinds of tricks to get them on his side. Verse 5, it tells the tale. God said, here's why I'm going to give you these supernatural abilities. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, he's not talking about Pharaoh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Moses' greatest concern when he was contemplating his calling and whether or not he was going to follow through, his, his greatest concern was, what will my brothers think of me? What will the Hebrews think of me? Will they receive me? Will they embrace my calling? Will they get behind my leadership? Hear me tonight. It is very possible that some of the greatest opposition you may face as a student seeking to make your life count for the kingdom. It's very possible that it's not going to come out from out there in the world. But perhaps it may come from a peer group in your youth group. 
Perhaps some of the opposition that you will face that will hold you at bay and keep you static in your walk with God will come from your own brothers and your sisters in the church. Again, I don't think it's the, the majority. I think it's the vocal minority. But as it, as it says, they're vocal. And they can be intimidating. But you've got to be willing to rise above that. And in the Holy Ghost tonight, I free you from the opinions of other people that would hold you back and keep you bound and, and keep your dreams and keep your purpose and keep your calling shackled in intimidation. I've just come to say, as for me, as your youth president and as your youth pastor, if you're from this church, I'm not going to judge you and I'm not going to hold you back. You don't have to hide in the shadows anymore, Gideon. Go ahead and lean into your calling. Go ahead and consecrate before the Lord. Others may mock you and try to push you aside and try to kill that consecration, but who cares what they say or what they do? You've got God on your side. I release you from the opinions of your peers. Go ahead and be bold for God. I close with this. Judges 6.33, New Living Translation now. There came the moment when the enemy came in like a flood. The Midianites crossed from the east side to the west side of the Jordan River, coming once again to raid Israel's crops and to leave them with next to nothing to eat. The Bible says, Soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel. They crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. And then the Spirit of the Lord, verse 34, please take note, it clothed Gideon with power. That calling came to fruition because Gideon was willing to consecrate before the Lord, and God knew he could trust him. So the Bible says that Gideon blew the ram's horn as a call to arms. And the men, watch, of the clan of Abizer came to him. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh, from the Abizrite clan, from the household of Joash. And what this scripture tells me is that when Gideon stepped into the time of fulfilling his calling and doing something for God's kingdom and doing exploits against the enemy, the first people to rally around him were the very ones that just a few verses early had criticized him and tried to kill him. The men of the clan of Abizer, that's his family. These same people that wanted to shut Gideon down are now rallying behind this young man of God and joining him in the fight. And I would say to you tonight, they may resist you at first, but your bold and your passionate stand for God, your commitment to consecration, it may just be the catalyst that sparks a change in them. It may just be the thing that sparks revival in your youth group. And they once maybe were willing to mock you and disdain you and try to wipe it out and push you to the side. But now when God has raised you up, they're willing to rally around and join you in the fight and lean into their calling themselves. Come on, don't be intimidated. Don't cower in the dark because God wants to use you to not just defeat the enemy, but to influence your peers that right now are holding you back. Come on, rise above their opinions. Rise above what they're saying and be something for God. I wish you would raise your hands all across 
this gathering tonight in your homes or wherever you are, all across our district. I feel God moving right now. I feel the Holy Ghost challenging right now. I feel God prompting you in your spirit. Come on, you're called, but it's time to consecrate. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't do it in the dark, but stand boldly in the face of every critic. Worship boldly in the face of every Michael. Go ahead and pray passionately in the face of everybody else willing to sleep it away. But go ahead and be something for God. Go ahead and lift your voices. Go ahead and lift your voices with hands and hearts and attention raised heavenward. Lord, God, we know your call is on this generation. But God, in this moment and in this season, we are willing to consecrate. We are willing to give you our best. We are willing to give you our all. No matter what anybody else might say, no matter what anybody else might do, no matter what our friends, our peers, in our youth group or in our church family may say or do, I refuse to be held captive and to be held bound by the lowest common denominator of passion in my church. God, I'm standing tall and I'm standing bold for you. Go ahead, if you've got the gift of the Holy Ghost, I wish you would pray in tongues right now. Pray in the Spirit. Lean into this move of God that, that Jesus is doing right now. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. God, right now, I release this generation. I release them from fear. I release them from intimidation. God, I, I bind every bit of cowardice that would grip the hearts of young people, that would grip the, grip the hearts of your, your children, whatever age, God. In the last days, you're calling for a bold church, a bold people. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would begin to work. Let boldness rest. If I'm the only one, God, I don't care. I'll be the only one for the audience of one. In the name of Jesus, as they begin to sing and worship together, I wish you would just continue to lean into prayer right now. God is working where you are. In the name of Jesus. Satolabona.